0: This is the Festival of the Mind podcast from the University of Sheffield. In this episode, writer, artist and photographer Christine Gregory presents archive interviews and excerpts from her latest book, The Land That Made Us. When
1: I'm bringing cows in in the morning, half past six, in the summer, there's cars going down to work. They probably work in Maxfield, Congleton, Stockport, Manchester, some of them. And when we turn the cows out at night, it's six o'clock, they're coming back. I know that best day. You know, and I think it is a great life.
2: It's one of my favourite memories, and when I hear a lapwing, it just takes me back then. But Yvonne and I used to walk to school up the lane, and lappings would nest in the, in, on the pasture there every summer. And that, can't, that doesn't happen now, because they've changed they've changed their habitat they've changed that into a field that they that they mow now for silage so we have no lapwings now anymore we had to run the gauntlet every morning and every evening and whenever i hear a lapwing i always that's i always think of my childhood to farm up there in all those rushes and and all that bog and, and all those gnats. And, and I think to myself, I must have been absolutely well, it crazy. It's
3: fighting illusion in battle. Those are voices from the farming community of the South West Peak, part of the Peak District National Park that forms the western flank of the South Pennines. The Staffordshire moorlands are in the heart of it. From 2016 to 2018, together with local dairy farmer Sheila Hine, I worked on an oral history project based on farming lives. This was part of a much bigger landscape-wide initiative funded by the National Heritage Lottery Fund and run by the Peak District National Park Authority. We interviewed nearly 40 farmers, some of whose memories stretch back to working with horses and hand milking. We also talked to young farmers now using high-tech milking systems, smallholders, incomers and diversifiers, all trying to make a living out of this beautiful, rugged and challenging landscape. Together, we collected about 80 years of farming history. These accounts were carefully edited together with linking text and lots of photographs of the farmers, the landscape, and the wildlife into a book that was published last year titled The Land That Made Us, The Peak District Farmer's Story. At the heart of the southwest peak is a high moorland plateau covered with blanket peat. It's flanked by gentle slopes that cut through with wooded cloughs descending to a richer pastoral landscape dotted with farmsteads. Neolithic people settled here, and it's been farmed ever since. Today, everyone's talking about the climate crisis, the collapse in biodiversity, going vegan, animal rights, Brexit, future trade deals, and food and environmental standards. That's when they're not talking about the pandemic. So it's useful, maybe even vital, to get the views of people whose lives are bound up with all those things, livestock farmers. Today, over 95% of the Southwest Peak is grassland dominated by upland livestock farming. Sheep, beef cattle, and some dairying are the principal mainstays and have been so ever since the Second World War. Farms range in size from tiny small holdings of just a few acres through to huge holdings of several hundred acres, but most are small farms. Around half have less than 20 hectares or 50 acres. Income tends to be low, especially in the uplands. Almost all of the southwest peak falls within the agricultural land classification as poor or very poor. This is and always was farming on the margins, and just how tough this has been is clear from talking to most of the older farmers. One farmer, Kath, told us many stories about her early life on a remote farm high in the hills, and how on the day she was born in 1956, a blizzard raged. But her mother milked the cows in the morning, gave birth to her, then milked again in the evening. Later on, her older brothers, just small boys at the time, searched for lambs in the dark, equipped with just candles in jam jars. The work of children was part of family life, helping with haymaking, collecting eggs, mucking out barns, or even mowing and ploughing before and after school. Michael started driving a tractor when he was four years old. He and his brother were tied on with one boy pushing the clutch in while the other put it in gear. Bill Brocklehurst took to the hills and was a shepherd for much of his working life across 5,000 acres of moorland, stretching up to the cat and fiddle. When I left school at 15
4: and my dad bought me a good working dog and a pair of horse-eyed boots on a, built on a full-sprung last, if you know what them are, and they were made out of horse and a pair had lasted me two years. He, he, it said, get a saw and go down it wood and cut yourself a stick. So I was a shepherd then, pound a week, and we keep. There was no thought of going getting a job or doing anything else.
2: The
3: labour was needed at all. The high Staffordshire moorlands were, before our climate changed, often snowbound for months. The great snows of 47 and 63 have stayed long in the memory of those who were there. Here's Michael and Bill.
4: In the oh, I mean, isn't there some snow? I says, Snow, you've seen nothing yet. <laughs> Why? I says, Well, when you see seat telegraph poles, stick it through top like that. I says, That's snow. Yeah, we've got 50 something pigs and run out of corn. We've got plenty of hay, we've got hay and straw. He so used to give them some chucks of may and sure of straw and tip milk to them. Every time they heard a bucket rattle, he used to be squealing, But he kept them alive, it was milk. 47 I can remember me we lived at Normanwood and we'd come out at bedroom windows and slid down Drift and the yeah, yard because all the house were buried and we'd added a few cows buildings and we couldn't get them out so they stacked cow muck up at back, just about covered all windows and everything up before they could get a door open for get muck out.
3: Farming was nothing but hard graft in the old days using methods that in many instances had changed little since the 17th century, with horses, hand milking and barrows and forks used up to the 1940s, which is when our farming history begins. Superficially, the southwest peak, this grand wild landscape with its wide open moorland, craggy outcrops and secluded valleys, may look much as it did a century ago. But how people work in the hills has changed over and over again, according to rules set by the UK government and the European Union. The first big trigger for change was the Second World War, when it was vital to keep the country self-sufficient and the population fed. Government got involved in the way that farms were run, deciding which crops should be planted where. Regardless of topography, soil type or accessibility, the War Agricultural Committees, known as the War Ags, told every farmer and farm worker in Britain to produce more by digging for victory. As several told us, the Ministry came round giving lectures and telling you what to do and what not to do. Between 1939 and the spring of 1940, British farmers increased the total productive land in the UK by nearly two million acres. During the war, the flower meadows and ancient pastures, even the moors and bogs of the southwest peak, went under the plough. This was the beginning of an end to hundreds of years of traditional farming as new technologies came in, together with powerful fertilisers, pesticides and herbicides. The chemical industry was up to its neck in the fields of England from the war years onwards. Atley's post-war Labour government wanted to keep the pedal on, increasing agricultural output to reduce food imports during a time of massive public spending On post-war reconstruction and the new National Health Service. This set in motion an industrial approach to farming that has altered forever the farming landscapes of Britain. The effects on the remote uplands of Britain were largely confined to increasing sheep numbers as the Hill Farming Act of 1946 made grants available to improve upland farms causing great expansion of livestock farming on marginal land. The following year, the Agriculture Act gave farmers an assured market, and guaranteed prices. Around this time, tractors came into common use, together with electric milking machines and pipe water, but not everyone had those. Hill farms were largely self-sufficient, with very little brought in through the farm gate, so together with dairy herds and sheep on the hill, they were growing fodder, vegetables, keeping hens and pigs and selling whatever they could. Many farmers had milk rounds, and by calling daily on remote farms and cottages and villages, they often had a role as informal social and community workers. People in the hills looked out for each other, because they all knew the challenges and hardships of trying to keep these farms going. There are no easy ways to generate your own electricity. Get the hay in before it rains, Collect sheep over vast tracts of moorland, or drive stock to market on foot. In the Southwest Peak, many farmers continued to work in the ways that their parents had done, with sheep on the hill, haymaking in summer, and cows tied in shippons all winter.
2: Shippons are cow sheds. Here's Denise. On a Saturday morning, we would have to clean out all of the shippons with a a wheelbarrow, a brush and a shovel, and that was our job. We And we cleaned out when the, when the cows were in for winter because they were tied up in a ship and I never thought about how a cow would feel just standing in the same position for about five or six months or however long. It could be fantastic weather, but my father never, ever let them out before the 1st of May, ever. Even if you had a scorching April, they would be in They would let them out they would just skip off and run around. It was wonderful watching the cows um, being let out for the first time after the winter. The 1970s changed everything in farming. Britain
3: joined the common market in 1973 and we were signed up to the Common Agricultural Policy, or CAP. This was a founding policy of the European Economic Community, the EEC which was set up in the 60s to provide food security to people of the member states and financial support to farmers. CAP accelerated the productivity drive of the war years and led to the ever-increasing industrialisation of farming. It also changed the culture of much of rural Britain as the mantra to produce more and more went along with subsidies to buy machinery, fertilisers, milking parlours and increase herd sizes or sheep numbers where farmers got paid per head for sheep to chew on the uplands of Britain. As one farmer told us, the country was saturated with sheep. This bonanza of overproduction soon led to surpluses and stockpiles, the so-called milk lakes, butter, beef and wheat mountains. In this drive to intensify production, the breeds changed, older British breeds almost disappeared, I remember seeing the first big herds of black and white cows in the 1960s, the British Frisians, that replaced older traditional breeds like Jerseys, Ayrshears and Shorthorns. But these were later replaced by the Holstein cows, the big black and white cows that still dominate the dairy scene in Britain today. These huge rangy cows can produce up to 10,000 litres of milk per year per cow. Between 1975, and 2014, the average milk yield per cow had almost doubled. From the late 1970s, it was clear that subsidised milk production increasingly outstripped consumer demand, so reforms were directed at limiting supplies. EU member states were fined heavily if they produced too much milk. Quotas came in to the UK in 1984 and were maintained until 2015. Milk quotas drove some out of the dairy industry who couldn't afford to buy or lease sufficient quota to make a living in the increasingly complex milk business. Some that remained in farming switched to sheep or beef cattle to balance the farm books with European subsidies then paid per head. Since 2000, the number of dairy farms in the area had decreased to just one in ten of all holdings in the southwest peak, whereas almost all the farms had once kept cows. Dairy herds have grown, with the average numbers almost four times what they were in the 1970s. But as herd sizes have grown, the number of dairy farmers has declined. Half of Britain's dairy farmers went out of business between 2000 and 2010. Despite this, dairy is still Britain's biggest farming sector. But as John, one of the few remaining Southwest Peak dairy farmers, told us, we're milking 150 cows now. A hundred ten years ago, and 60 cows 25 years ago, just to earn the same profit off them. How many will we have to milk in 35 years' time to make it work? We can blame the supermarkets for driving prices down and allowing milk to be a loss leader. We can blame ourselves for our addiction to cheap food. We can blame the free market economics and its uneasy relationship with government intervention, that's ebbed and flowed down the decades to the impasse that we're currently in. But let's get back to the southwest peak and its hills and pastures, with fewer cows, bigger yields and fewer farmers. What were the cows eating and how is this part of the story? Flower-rich hay meadows were once essential to stock farming supplying winter fodder for sheep, cattle and horses. They were vital, as well as being places of great beauty, unique and particular to their localised soil, topography and aspect. Often hundreds of years in the making, with as many as 50 plant species in just one square metre, they were a food source for a rich variety of insects, birds and animals and provided cover for breeding and raising young. In the lower lying valleys of the Southwest Peak, traditional pastures and hay meadows had been the bedrock of farming. While in the uplands, rushy pastures were grazed by sheep and cattle for centuries in an unchanged, unimproved condition. These permanent pastures contain many rare species and have been vital for ground nesting birds. In the 1970s, even in the Southwest Peak, traditional pastures started to be improved. They were ploughed up or reseeded with perennial ryegrass to be made into silage through a process of fermentation. Silage, usually stored in pits, is now often wrapped in plastic bales. A dairy farmer once told me that ryegrass silage is like rocket fuel for cows. The newer grasses that have replaced the traditional swards are fast-growing, and can be cut four or even five times a year, unlike hay, which produces just one crop that must be cut and dried and turned in the field before baling, so you need about five sunny days in succession, not always a possibility in the peak district. Ryegrass dominates and eliminates other species and is often treated with nitrogen-rich fertilizer to maintain its high output. This alters the composition of the soil impacting microorganisms and damaging soil life. The ryegrass monoculture doesn't support the level of insect life that waders, skylarks, partridge and all the summer migrants depend on to feed their young. In order to plough up, reseed, fertilise and cut pastures with increasingly big rigs, field sizes grew and walls were knocked down. Heavy machinery has often compacted the fragile soils, Traditional wildflower meadows are now a great rarity in Britain, and few remain today in the southwest peak. Natural England has estimated that nationally, by 1996, we had lost 97% of species-rich meadows that had existed in the 1930s. Across the Peak District National Park, half of the hay meadows were lost between 1985 and 1996, just over 10 years and a further 25% were lost or went into decline between 1995 and 1998. Few people under the age of 50 now know what hay meadows were like or have any experience of a farming landscape teeming with wildlife. (coughs) The southwest peak with its upland moors, blanket bog, dry heath, wet pastures and meadows is important for many bird species, in particular waders that depend on such areas to breed. In spring, curlew and lapwing return from their wintering grounds to raise their young in damp pastures, marshy areas and on the moorland. All three species are in very serious decline and most other bird species associated with farmland are also in trouble. The main periods of decline in the southwest peak coincide with the periods of the greatest agricultural change with extensive drainage of marginal land, ploughing up and reseeding of old plastures, use of inorganic fertilisers and the destruction of hay meadows. In some cases, the use of antibiotics in cattle that are prone to infection in intensive farming systems has meant that dung from treated cattle is sterile thereby reducing the presence of the beetles, bugs, worms and grubs that are a food source for farmland birds. Also, this dung doesn't break down organically and therefore fails to nourish the soil. Waders have held on in the southwest peak, but their populations have all declined fast in the 25 years between 1985 and 2010. Long-term population trends in key hotspots show a freefall decline from 1985 of 81% for Lapwing, 89% for Snipe and 75% for Curlew. Several sites in the southwest peak designated as sites of special scientific interest, SSSIs, and special protection areas, SPAs, owe their status to their wader populations. Many consider the curlew to be Britain's highest priority bird species for conservation action and waders have been included as target features in agri-environment schemes for years. Over almost the same period, a survey carried out by the Pan-European Common Bird Monitoring Scheme, which was published in June 2012, found that of 36 species of farmland birds surveyed, overall numbers had halved between 1980 and and 2010. EU farming policies were blamed for the devastating collapse in populations of formerly common birds. Here in Britain, the decline in certain species was notably higher than in other EU countries. According to the scheme's chairman, Richard Gregory, of the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, the RSPB, we have been sleepwalking into a disaster. The accelerating extinction of many species around the world was recognized at the Earth Summit in Rio in 1992. There was growing understanding that species are interdependent and that the breakdown of the complex web of life by man's activities on the Earth ultimately threatens all of us. Fragile and unique landscapes like the Southwest Peak need preserving, but the question of how they should be farmed is highly contentious and the gulf between farmers and conservationists can look unbridgeable. The goalposts for farmers have kept on moving and the shift from productivity payments to conservation targets has been the cause of much conflict and resentment down the years, with farmers often feeling policed and criticized for trying to make a living
1: from their land. Here's Jeff. We are conservationists, they are interfering with our way of life. Because they're the boss. We take their money, have to take their money. And whatever they give us the money and you, you'll do as you're told. If I ring up over something, I have a good National England person to speak to, which is she's very understanding. But generally, they like, as though you're asking for something you shouldn't be. If you want to put some sheep on a field or whatever, I'm not doing it because I'm trying to pinch anything. I'm doing it because I want the, the good of the land or the good of the animals. You see, the worst thing is, all this land you can only go on for five months. Well, it's 12 months in a year. That's the killer. What what are you supposed to do? The thing is, it's very localised. If you go a mile down the road, so he's got all green land, totally different than this side of the hill. All right, we've got a good view, but you can't make you know, you can't make money out of the view. But the view won't stop like this unless the farmers are allowed to farm properly. On the other
3: hand, conservation bodies have long assessed land use priorities based on what they call ecosystem services. These are benefits that human society derives from the natural world, which are environmental, economic and cultural. Such services have increasingly underpinned EU and national policy. In the Southwest Peak, the principal value of uplands for carbon sequestration, water supply, flood control and habitat for endangered species is reflected in what gets funded and how. For three decades, support to farmers has been targeted towards conserving and repairing landscapes and habitats, rather than increasing productivity. The focus of agri-environmental schemes has, in many cases, been a case of paying farmers to undo the environmental damage that they were paid to do in previous decades. In the 1980s, evidence of the negative impacts of intensive farming led to the first government schemes to encourage wildlife-friendly farming. Environmentally sensitive areas, ESAs, were created in 1987. With them came incentives to conserve, enhance and recreate landscape features and wildlife habitats and to encourage public access. In 1992, much of the Southwest Peak was designated as an ESA in recognition of the area's national importance in terms of landscape, wildlife and historic interest. Later schemes included countryside stewardship in 1991 which was among other things, introduced to increase diversity in the farmed landscape by improving and extending wildlife habitats and conserving historic features such as walls and field barns. Then came environmental stewardship in 2005, which funded farmers and land managers to improve water quality, reduce soil erosion, improve conditions for farmland wildlife and maintain and enhance landscape character and features. Many of these 10-year agreements have expired, or will do so very soon, to be replaced by a new countryside stewardship, which came into effect in 2016. But decreased funding, and specifically less money available to upland farmers, coupled with a move to complex online communications with DEFRA, have led to poor take-up of this. But for nearly 30 years, Various EU and government funding for sustainable farming has been a vital income stream for farmers. But what was it like for the farmers? This what one farmer called brown envelope farming. Asked to pull down ancient dry stone walls, only to be asked 50 years later to build them back up again. To drain the land, then later block up the drains. To be paid per head to increase your flock, then later be paid to take sheep off the hill to go from getting your living from selling produce to getting by on subsidies that pay you not to farm. We all lament the lost sounds of our childhood if we're old enough to remember how skylarks, pipits, yellowhammers, peewits and curlew once made the soundscape of our country walks. We remember clouds of butterflies, nighttime drives in summer where the air, dense with insects, would smear the windscreen. The causes of this devastation are many, in addition to the loss of meadows, increased monocrops, the poisoning of our rivers with sheep dip and seed dressings, the grubbing up of miles of hedgerows, drainage, urban sprawl, road development. The losses are incalculable and it's hard to care about what you never knew. I've spent the last 10 years writing about, talking about, reading about species loss, especially in the farmland of the Peak District where I've also been doing voluntary survey work on birds, mammals, and insects. I often give talks to wildlife trust groups, women's institutes, field clubs, social and church groups. At 67, I'm often the youngest person in the room. I'm a member of Extinction Rebellion, Greenpeace, the Mammal Society, the RSPB, the British Trust for Ornithology, the Wildfowl and Wetland Trust, All organisations that recognise the dire straits that we're in as we persist in wreaking damage on the earth, the only home that we have and that we share with what remains of our pitifully diminished wildlife. Anyone the world over who knows anything at all about wildlife knows that we are already in the sixth extinction, the last being that which wiped out the dinosaurs. Scientists agree that we face a biological crisis on earth so great it's without precedent in the planet's history. In my book on water voles, another UK species on the imminent extinction list, I wrote in 2016 that humans now make up a third of all land-based vertebrates in terms of biomass, and that the animals that we keep to eat make up most of the other two-thirds. All of the world's wild animals, everything from elephants to mice and frogs, constitute just 5% of land vertebrate biomass on earth. Farming is killing the earth, and public attitudes to it are changing. As ruminants fart methane into the atmosphere, and forests are cleared to grow fodder for cattle, the arguments against meat and dairy are clear. Strong links have been made between our warped connection with both wild and farmed animals, and the coronavirus pandemic. Many millennials, and climbing to where old is, have converted to a more plant-based diet. One in eight Britons are now vegetarian or vegan, and over a fifth are flexitarian, which means that they eat meat just occasionally. David Dobbin, former chairman of Dairy UK, feared a demographic time bomb as young people increasingly shun milk. The World Wildlife Fund published a stark report in 2018 showing that globally, through climate change, habitat loss, over-exploitation and agriculture, we've killed 60% of wildlife on Earth since we walked on the moon, and that the UK has some of the most degraded nature in the world. Climate scientists tell us that we have just two years in which to halt irreversible and catastrophic climate change. George Monbiot believes that all meat and dairy farming are stopped and asks, are we prepared to act on what we know or will we continue to gorge on the lives of our descendants? Research published in April last year by Harvard academics Helen Harwatt and Matthew Hayek showed that if our grazing land was allowed to revert to natural ecosystems and the land currently used to grow feed for livestock was used for grains, beans, nuts, fruits and vegetables for humans, the switch would allow the UK to absorb an astonishing quantity of carbon. And the farming in this country could then feed everyone without the need for imports. A plant-based diet would make the difference between the UK's current failure to meet its international commitments and success in doing that. But where does this leave farmers who've believed for over 80 years that they are feeding the nation and are stewards to the countryside? The Agriculture Bill, introduced in September 2018, announced the biggest shake-up in UK farming since the Second World War. The current system of direct payments will be phased out over a seven-year period from 2021. Smaller farms should benefit under new measures to redirect funds away from the richest landholders and to pay for new schemes, research and development. Michael Gove promised a green Brexit a post-Brexit farm policy that will invest in the environment and take back control for farmers after almost 50 years under EU rules and legislation to deliver a cleaner and healthier environment for future generations. From 2028, environmental land management, that's ELM, contracts will be introduced to pay farmers to tackle climate change, increase wildlife habitats and improve water, air and soil quality. The Agriculture Bill promised public money for public goods. Early signs from this government do not look promising. It voted through its trade bill on the 20th of July and waived any guarantees on maintaining animal welfare and environmental standards for imports into the UK. A kick in the face for our farmers who may face ruin if competing with low-grade imported food. Next year, it seems ever more likely that we'll leave the EU, our biggest trading partners, with no deal. Farmers face challenges on all sides, with uncertainties over future financial support, tight margins and the increasing extreme weather events brought about by climate change. It may be that hill farmers come to be regarded as the victims of progress, like the coal miners, shipyard and steel workers of the last century, consigned to the history books. Farmers never complain about hard work in a job that's 24-7. But the bureaucracy, changing goalposts, jumping through hoops to qualify for ever-shrinking grants has driven many out. The older generation are dying out or retiring. Some have sons and daughters to take on the struggle. But for decades now, city people, commuters, have moved into some of these fine old farmhouses and sold off or let their fields to big dairy businesses heavy on the land with vast acreages of silage and nitrate applications that both deaden the landscape and the wildlife. The toil of previous generations, coping with all weathers, rural poverty, TB, mad cow disease, foot and mouth, and sometimes public hostility. All this should be recognised and respected. What our farming history has told us in the words of the farmers themselves is that they know their landscape best. And they know how to change and adapt. They've been doing it for hundreds of years. We devoted the last part of our book to the next generation of dairy and beef farmers, specialist breeders, smallholders and diversifiers. Here's what Andrew Sabir, an organic farmer, had to say about a possible future for hill farmers.
5: The only way is for them to be recognised as Um, vital part of the existing landscapes which we wish to preserve and of the habitat for the wildlife which we are desperately keen to preserve and for them to be paid paid as you can call it park keepers I mean often that's the term referred to but to be paid to be there but the obligation which would go with the property, is that it must only be a farm. I think the answer lies in forgetting the trying to trying to make these little farms profitable, but to call them public goods. And then you don't call it charity, you just simply say that I am now providing a public good. I'm here to look after something and to hand it on to other generations something which will our ancestors um, will be forever proud of that we did it that that we we had a you know we had a worthy job in life which was to keep that place going and to provide part of the landscape
3: i have never in 30 years of living in the peak district met a farmer who does not love his or her land, farm animals and the wild creatures that live on the land. It's my belief that people who are in touch with the natural world more than most of us are part of the key to getting us out of the mess that we're in, and I look forward to a dialogue that draws on the experience of the farmers who've devoted their lives to making a living on the hills. I leave the last words to Bill and Denise and Helen
4: but well, there's just too many people out there telling your farmer what he must do. Farmer probably knows what to do, for make a living, cause if he can't make a living, he's not gonna do it, is he? And it's nice him saying, well, we'll give you, you know, we'll give you a hand out for not doing anything, cause it, you know, the, the money's not there one day.
2: In my father's day, he cared for the land. He loved the land. It was his life. And he did have a great connection, my dad did. And I i mean, I think now of my nephew who is still farming and I'd, I wouldn't say he's got a great connection or love for the land. He drives huge machinery. I just think they just care about getting a job done, getting the crops in, you know, before it rains. You know, because they're under different pressures, aren't they, really? And the pressure's really are greater i think now God, i don't think you can
0: pollute all the time I and mean, you just got to you know you've got to be kind haven't you but you see people aren't kind anymore are they nobody cares anymore nobody to me there's nothing nice i like this morning i've just walked walk the dogs up across the top and you just stop because the skylarks there and you think wow this is amazing you know it's the lapwings and the curlies because I think there's just nothing nicer than hearing that, and how many people hear that. The Land That Made Us, the Peak District Farmer's Story, is published by Vertebrate and available from all bookshops or direct from the Peak District National Park Authority. Christine's observations in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the Farming History Project she describes. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe. We'll be publishing episodes every day of the festival. We'd love to hear your thoughts and responses on social media. Find us on Twitter at FestivalMind and at facebook.com forward slash... Festival of the mind.